electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Homes.com knows that when it comes to home shopping, it's never just about the house or condo. It's about the home. And what makes a home is more than just the house or property. It's the location and neighborhood. If you have kids, it's also schools, nearby parks, and transportation options. That's why Homes.com goes above and beyond to bring home shoppers the in-depth information they need to find the right home. And when I say in-depth, I'm talking deep. Each listing features comprehensive information about the neighborhood, complete with a video guide. They also have details about local schools with test scores, state rankings, and student-to-teacher ratio. They even have an agent directory with the sales history of each agent. So when it comes to finding a home, not just a house, this is everything you need to know, all in one place. Homes.com. We've done your homework. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramer. I'm Bill and my friends. Just trying to make you a little money. My job, not just to entertain, but to educate, teach, explain, call me. 1-800-743-CBC. Tweet me, at Jim Kramer. Look, if you did well during the pandemic, it's almost a given that you're doing poorly in a post-pandemic world. It seems to be very hard to adjust to the new world, and it's leading to schisms in the marketplace that are getting, frankly, at this point, very hard for me to comprehend. This transition keeps wreaking havoc with the markets, including today, Dow dipped 151 points, S&P pulled back about 0.22%. And then as that declined, well, no, I'd say that it was pretty flat, but at one point it was very ugly, nasty open. Sometimes the COVID hangover is so obvious. And last night, Zoom video reported, and it reported another huge disappointment. One in a long string of many since the vaccine started kicking in. This pandemic darling, a name that became kind of like Kleenex in terms of a verb or a damn, whatever, you know, like a familiar thing, just can't seem to get beyond itself. While press reports indicated the consumer business was weak, a lot of people thought the enterprise business was hanging in there. No, no, no. In reality, Zoom's getting smoked by Microsoft Teams. Parker's Microsoft's a really vicious competitor, just don't seem like it. But what's most alarming about Zoom's miss is they don't seem to realize what's wrong. It's almost existential. The the pandemic is really waning. And aside from some exceptional situations, you almost never say where to need to wear a mask. Yet the Zoom people seem to act as if we're still hunkered down in our homes wearing masks as we hide from COVID germs that lurk at the office and on every plane. Nothing could be further from the truth. Now, you can say they have no choice. Zoom is Zoom. I mean, what else are they going to do besides Zoom? Right? I mean, they Zoom. I say they've got $5.5 billion in cash. Why not try to reinvent yourselves in these? Sure, I know they tried and failed to buy 5.9, the contact center software play. But that was over a year ago, and they haven't tried anything else since. Again, you could argue there was nothing out there that could fit Zoom's core competency. Who's Zoom and who? But, man, there are literally hundreds of venture capital-backed businesses that are devoted to innovative software that would dovetail 
into the House of Zoom. Or, or they could just at least look for some important partnerships. I got an idea. Why not collaborate with DraftKings to have video gambling on events where you play me or I play you or we play against each other in a group of people? In the end, the decline and soon fall of Zoom is a stunning failure, not of the company's original product, which was great, but of the inability to imagine something bigger or at least a fallback plan if the all-stock deal to buy 5.9 collapsed. Something that became pretty obvious as its stock fell badly and Zoom refused to pony up cash to make the deal work. Of course, they're not alone. I don't want to just blame Zoom. I mean, how about DocuSign? The outfit that allows you to sign contracts digitally rather than in person has totally failed to become more than its old self, even though it's sitting on a bill with cash. There are so many ancillary identity and cybersecurity deals these guys could have done that it is just painful. Where does it say that DocuSign has to be DocuSign or Zoom has to be Zoom? Hey, look, I'm not asking them to become conglomerates overnight, but after last night's painful Zoom conference call, it does seem that that all Zoom wants to be is is Zoom and all DocuSign wants to be is DocuSign. It's been more than two months and they still have no CEO since Dan Springer unceremoniously stepped aside. Somebody could easily step in and reinvent this thing as a consumer-facing service company with all sorts of security options to go with the signing. But no, it languishes occasionally the same thing that made its stock skyrocket two years ago. These guys have no imagination. Now, those are the well-known disappointments. I mean, I throw in Peloton, too, but they don't have enough money to reinvent themselves. However, it's the secondary post-pandemic losers that are really frustrating to me. Take one of my old favorites. Take the stock of Clorox. Now, here's a company that, that was given a cash cow, right? An injection of consumer wealth, a virtual COVID handout. And all that has happened is that its cash position has declined from $871 million in 2020 to $183 million now. Market capitalization has gone from $22 billion to $18 billion, even as they haven't done anything to make the balance sheet better. Surely Clorox could have used that wipes windfall to double or even triple the size, say, of Burt's Bees line of natural products. At a minimum, how about buying Elf Beauty, the cosmetics company that's doing so well in Ulta? They've got a lot of natural and organic products. Hey, what a terrific compliment to a business that's going nowhere. I got an idea. How about purchasing Utz to expand the Hidden Valley Ranch franchise? Or why not sell the Hidden Valley Ranch fries, uh, franchise entirely? I don't want And McCormick could probably buy them. And, and, and move into an area adjacent to Kingsford's Charcoal. I've got one. Traeger, symbol Cook. You can buy a grill company for next to nothing right now, then expand into wood pellets. This is not rocket science. It's just an acknowledgement that there was a windfall, and you better do something with it or your stock will languish. I really like that Traeger idea. I, that, come on, that's good. Well, I can't really hear you at home, but I, I know you're nodding. All right. Then there's a whole other group of companies that seem to not get it. Take the rails and the airlines, okay? I mean, honestly, let's focus on these. Now, the rails and the airlines, they're boom-bust businesses. always have been where they used to, they're used to hiring people and then laying them off, depending upon the vicissitudes of the economy. They laid people off well during the downturn. Oh, but somehow, dumb family, they keep waiting forever for those people to come back rather than aggressively finding new hires. Now, if you're in the airline business, is it that hard to recognize that we're very short pilots, perhaps as many as 10,000 of them, and now mechanics? Why can't they face what's happening and get on with it? Private training and reinvention. Come on. And why do they keep hoping the old pilots will come back rather than understanding that it's not happening and start doing the poaching and the retraining? And don't tell me these people can't be found. Take the hit. Pay much more. That's the real issue, isn't it? 
and move on. What else? As I listen to these retail conference calls, I'm stunned that so many of them think our taste in clothing has permanently changed thanks to COVID. But nothing's permanent in the apparel business. We indeed dress down during the play. But now we dress up and go out. We want to put COVID behind us, for heaven's sake, not look like that we did during COVID. We don't want to put schmatzes on for a fancy meal. Don't you know that? These companies listen to each other's conversations. I mean, shouldn't they know better? Certainly, there are some tense moments. Who's coming to work? Who's staying home? Who's working three days a week? Who's working no days a week? I mean, I get all that. That's in flux. But at this point, I would say those situations are getting pretty far few between, few between and far between. Most people have moved on to other pastures if they don't like their company's work-from-home philosophy. Some enterprises totally get it. I think Cisco's in breakout mode now. It's getting, getting the chips it needs to become flexible enough to accommodate remote work. It helps that they're a very accommodative company when it comes to where you get your work done. When I listen to the Palo Alto conference call or, or, or talk to the brilliant CEO Nikesh Aurora on the show last night, I remember that he was the first CEO to see things were never going to be the same. And his cybersecurity company adjusted and capitalized off it. No wonder his stock jumped 61 points or 12% today. The automakers, they've been able to take the next step. I'm sorry, they haven't been able to take the next step. You know why? They didn't understand their own supply chains. They hadn't figured out how they actually built new digitized cars. They were like from some sort of analog world. They, didn't, they couldn't predict how the semiconductor market was going to be changed by the, the chip makers that, uh, that only cared about video games and high-performance computing. By this point, they could have built their own semiconductor foundries themselves to solve the shortage. They're still paying the price. We know it hasn't been long since the pandemic effectively ended, but we're so quick to fault the Fed for providing too much liquidity or Congress for doing too much deficit spending. The truth is, we'd be in a much better situation if the private sector had been proactive about transitioning to a post-COVID world, and they really haven't done a good job. Still, the bottom line is that it's not too late for some of these outfits, like Zoom, that are sitting on big piles of cash to reinvent. They just can't seem to point the camera at themselves and see the truth. I say we go to Ann in Indiana. Ann! I'm a club member. I love it, Jim. Thanks for all you do. Oh, you're so kind. Thank you. So I have some deep in the money call options on Twitter. I've trimmed on the way up. Am I in a perfect world just waiting for my catalyst of a settlement or uh, well, Twitter you, winning I'm their lawsuit? I'm glad you brought First of all, thank you for being a member of the club. The club is very hot right now. We're doing a lot of new things. I urge everyone to try it. You won't believe all the things that come with it. It's not just an email. But I will tell you that Twitter's now down all the way to 39, in part because of this uh, whistleblower that we read about today. And I would not sell it at this point. I think there's nine points downside and 15 points upside. And that is enough to be compelling. I just don't think that it's worth it, $39 to sell Twitter. I, but I do thank you for the kind words. Again, yeah, nine down, 15 up. All right, we're very quick to fault the Fed for providing too much liquidity or Congress for creating too much money during the pandemic. But we would be in a much better position if more companies have been proactive about transitioning to a post-COVID world. I want to be sure people understand, at $39, you really got 12 on it, okay? I don't want to make it sound like that, we, that you're going to go above the offer. It's not. On Mad Money tonight, investors are starting to fear that this market is shaping up a lot like 2001 and 2008. Those were very bad years. So do the comparisons hold any weight? I'll give you my take. Then what could jobless claims tell us about the trajectory of the market? 
you might think nothing, but I'm going to go up the charts and you're going to learn otherwise. And you called in and stumped me on a company called AdCore. I'm turning in my homework on the stock to see if it could present an enticing buying opportunity. And I got to tell you, it's pretty darn sweet. So stay with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at CNBC.com or give us a call at 1 800 743 CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. Fact Running a business is not getting easier on your wallet. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. Also a fact, smart businesses are reducing costs and headaches by graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. Accessed from anywhere. You can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. See how you'll profit with NetSuite, and then you can think of all the ways you could be spending the money you save. Company retreated in Malibu, anyone? By popular demand, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to NetSuite.com to start saving. When you're hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging to connect with candidates faster. Plus, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than three and a half million businesses worldwide that use Indeed. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash madmoney. Just go to Indeed.com slash madmoney right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash madmoney. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Pullback that started late last week, things were looking pretty good here with a fabulous at the lows in mid-June. However, as that rally continued through August, we started hearing a certain kind of call with increasing frequency. People pointing out that the action this year bears an uncanny resemblance to 2001 and 2008. Both very bad times for the averages. In both years, we started off with a significant sell-off, then recovered over the summer, only to get hit with severe downdrafts from September through the end of the year. The implication is that we're following the footsteps of 2001 and 2008, which means you need to take a page from Jordan Peele and get out! Look, I can't deny the market's trajectory this year is very similar to what we saw in 2001 and 2008. In fact, it's almost eerie. But the context is very different, and that's what we care about. So tonight I want to take an honest look at the, this comparison with an open mind. 
give the idea a fair shake to see if it makes sense. Let's start with the charts, where the similarities, frankly, are stunning. As of last night's close, the S&P was down 13% for the year. It initially fell 23% before bottoming on June 16th, and then rebounding 13% from its lows. How does that stack up to the other horrible years? Well, in 2008, the S&P was down 12%. At the same point, the index initially fell 17% earlier in the year, before bottoming in mid-July and rebounding 6% through late August. I call that very similar. As for 2001, the S&P was down nearly 12% at the same point in August, initially fell 16% earlier in the year, bottomed in April, then rebounded more than 5% through late August. If we're simply replaying the trajectory from those years, that would be a huge problem. In 2008, from this point in August to the end of the year, the S&P did lose 30% of its value as Lehman Brothers imploded a few weeks later and the financial crisis laid waste to the economy. The House of Pain. In 2001, the S&P proceeded to fall 17% from this point in August through late September for recovering before the end of the year. Again, though, that was a uniquely bad moment. The tragedy of September 11th threw us for a loop, and the market didn't find its footing until more than a year later. Sounds pretty scary, doesn't it? I think anyone making this kind of comparison is trying to scare you, though which often seems, by the way, to be the whole M.O. of the chattering classes. But hey, I, yeah, are they going to be right this time? If we want to learn anything from this comparison, we need to run with it. The fact that the charts look similar so far doesn't really tell you much, although the fact that all sorts of preferred stocks got crushed today, really, just today, that was somewhat reminiscent of 2008. So let's dig deeper. This year, we've been working off an overheated stock market after the excesses of 2021, where all things speculative exploded higher. We've been dogged by the worst inflation in decades, something that made us rethink what we're willing to pay for any and every stock, and that's correct to do. But it's a weird kind of inflation that's partially fueled by our post-COVID supply chain disruptions. At the same time, the Federal Reserve has been in the warpath since last November. So far, they've hit us with one normal 25 basis point rate hike, one double rate hike, and most recently, two triple rate hikes. Even though commodity prices have collapsed, meaning traditional producer inflation has peaked, the Fed clearly is not done. We don't even want them done. We know that there are a few more rate hikes left. We just don't know how large they'll have to be. Although we must find out something Friday at 10 o'clock when, uh, we, when we get a full report from a bunch of people. But in most particular, Powell speaks at 10 a.m. That's not a great backdrop. But the one upside here is that the market's already had a huge decline to the point where the average name in the S&P 500 currently trades at 18 times earnings, a little less than its 10-year historical average. Now, get this. At its lows in June, the S&P got down to 16 times earnings, where it was quite cheap and we got a huge rebound. Will it revisit that price? I don't know. I think that that low is behind us, but it, anything can change. Why? Because, well, how does this compare, to, for instance, to the points in 2008 and 2001? Let's start with the financial crisis. At this point in 2008, we were already in a, a full year into the sell-off, and people had just begun to realize that the banks were in serious, serious trouble. Remember, I was ranting that the Fed knew nothing. They knew nothing! Because they didn't see the severity of the crisis back in the summer of 2007. By August of 2008, the collapse of Bear Stearns was already in the rearview window. That happened in March. While the market held up just fine during the five months after that, uh, obviously there were real huge problems under the surface that weren't talked about. At the same time, the Fed was rapidly cutting interest rates, though not rapidly enough. How about valuations? At the end of the third quarter of 2008, the S&P 500 was trading at just 14 times earnings. The market was much cheaper back then, in large part because many money managers felt that the earnings estimates were way too high. 
What about 2001? Well, this one feels more similar to the current moment. While the Nasdaq had peaked a year and a half before, we were still unwinding the excesses of the dot-com era. However, by August of 2001, the Fed had already finished tightening. In fact, they started cutting rates aggressively in early 2001. Still, the average stock in the S&P finished the third quarter of 2001 trading at 20 times earnings, quite a bit more expensive than they are now. Keep that in mind. Now, just looking at these two years through August, we were at a very different point in the business cycle than we are now. The Fed had already engineered serious slowdowns and was backtracking with rate cuts. That's nothing like the current moment at all, where the economy is still healthy and the Fed wants to cool things down more. Of course, the big difference is that 2008 and 2001 both had major destabilizing events in September. And I, right now, don't see a parallel in this year. 2008 was the reverberations from the Lehman Brothers collapse nearly bringing down the financial system. In 2001, of course, it was 9-11. Now, is it possible we could have a black swan event, as they're called, that wrecks everything before the end of the year? Of course. Anything's always possible. Maybe the war in Ukraine somehow escalates beyond its borders, roping in NATO, triggering World War III with Russia. All bets off. Maybe the Chinese economy collapses or the Chinese government invades Taiwan. Another all bets off moment. Maybe there's a new COVID variant that our current vaccines can't handle. Always a concern. A lot of things could conceivably go wrong. But none of them seems very likely. In the absence of a major destabilizing event like the Lehman Brothers collapse or 9-11, I just think it is plain ill-advised to compare this period to 2008 or 2001. Listen, I call as I see it on Mad Bunny. I hope you know that. I pulled on my horns last week when I saw the SPACs roaring along with the crazy meme stock action in Bed Bath & Beyond. Bad signs. Bad signs that they tend to proceed pullbacks. And that's what I told you. So if something terrible happens on the scale of Lehman Brothers collapse, again, unlike many others, I think is highly unlikely, then I would indeed have to change my mind. Here's the bottom line. Unless something terrible comes out of nowhere, I'm feeling pretty sanguine about this market because 2022 is not 2008 or not 2001. And I believe once the Fed is near done, not done, but near done tightening, then the bull market in force will resume again. Mad Money's back after the break. Coming up, will the market stay the course as long as we keep working? Kramer tracks what the charts say, and employment may hold the key. Next. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura's been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. 
four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. How do we get our arms around this frustrating moment? Right now, the stock market's like a chemotherapy patient. We've got a cancer. It's called inflation. And the Federal Reserve is trying to kill the cancer desperately. But Dr. Powell's treatments also hurt the economy. We're hoping that the Fed can contain inflation before the economy heals over. And the diagnosis has gotten better in the last couple of months with commodity inflation collapsing. Retail gluts all over the place, as Nordstrom said this very evening. But in the end, we don't know how aggressive the Fed will be going forward which makes it hard to figure out where this market's ultimately headed. At times like this, I find when the fundamentals are this murky, I like to fall back on technical analysis. That's why tonight we're going off the charts with someone new, with the help of Ralph Vince. He's a brilliant technician who's been programming trading systems for all sorts of funds since the early 80s and has an incredible grasp of the big picture. Just as important, he was personally recommended by Larry Williams, the godfather of market historians, who's done so well for us in mad money. Right now, Vince feels relatively good about the market. He sees it drifting gradually higher. He'd be a buyer in the weakness. However, he's also noticed some ugly cross-currents that you need to keep an eye on. If they worsen, he'd be inclined to change his view. So I want to expose you to all his different thoughts because I think that they are so important. Let's start with employment because this is, of course, the number one driver of any given bull market. The employment to stock prices correlation is incredibly strong. There are a lot of different ways of measuring the elephant that is employment. But Vince likes to look at continuing jobless claims. Unlike the monthly labor report, we get jobless claims every week. So the data is timely. And when you look at continuous jobless claims in particular, they aren't subject to insane revisions down the road. This chart shows continuing jobless claims going back to the 1980 with Vince's risk on or off model overlaid in blue. His model says you go long the stock market when the 39-week continuing jobless claims make a new low, and you've got to go negative when continuing jobless claims start making new highs. Using this buy-or-sell trigger has been very accurate for the last 42 years. In fact, going back to 1980, it's about a thousand. Since 1980, it's identified these short-to-long switches, or vice versa, on the S&P 14 times. And do you know that it's been right every single time? Even as there are moments, well, that it looks, that it makes you nervous. Right now, Vince says the continuing claims data remains in bull mode. Even though we're very worried about a Fed-mandated recession, we've got an insanely strong labor market here. That's good news for the broader economy, even if it makes the Fed more likely to raise rates aggressively down the road. But this stubbornly resilient job market also offsets some of the damage from these rate hikes. Of course, employment is not the be-all and end-all. You also got to keep an eye on earnings and dividends and the market's overall valuation. So I want you to check out this chart of the S&P 500 overlaid with Vince's valuation model. He looks at the S&P's earning yield, that's the 12-month trailing earnings per share, divided by the share price, basically the price journey's multiple reverse, along with the dividend yield. Then he compares them to the yield you'd get from 90-day Treasury bills. Going back to 1980, Vince's valuation models fired off a buy 18 times. And while it's not perfect, it's been right 16 times out of 18. I regard that as pretty darn accurate. Plus, as you can see, his valuation model would have kept you out of the crash of 87 and the dot-com collapse and the financial crisis. That's pretty darn good. Well, it kept you out of the Internet boom in the late 90s where you could have made a lot of money. Other than that, I'm calling this thing pretty darn reliable. More importantly, right now, this valuation model says the market remains a buy. It's in risk-on mode, so to speak. 
But, and this is a very big but, kind of a Sir Mix-a-Lot but if you want to get graphic. What's, what's driving Vince crazy is that we've also got some disturbing big picture negatives. So check out this chart, which shows both the S&P 500 and the inflation-adjusted earnings per share of the S&P's components going back to 1880. 1880. Right now, Vince points out that inflation-adjusted earnings have gone negative this year. Historically speaking, that is a bad sign. In fact, going back to World War II, inflation-adjusted earnings going negative has always spelled trouble for the stock market, even in the 87 crash, which was mostly about the market getting overheated. We briefly saw the inflation-adjusted earnings for the S&P go negative a few months before that meltdown. So this, this is not good. As for right now, this is not some blip. Vince notes that inflation-adjusted earnings have been negative for a big chunk of the year. Makes sense. Inflation is ridiculously high, and corporate earnings growth has taken a hit. While some of his other models are positive in the market here, this inflation-adjusted earnings signal, I'm calling it ominous. Let me give you one more. Take a look at this chart of dividend payouts per share in light blue plotted next to the S&P 500 in dark navy. Going back a few years, historically, dividends per share have tracked very strongly with the broader stock market. Companies boost their payouts when times are good and cut them when times are bad. So they're an extremely tight correlation. Not long ago, Vince points out that dividends per share turned positive after briefly going lower. And these switches can often stay positive for a protracted period of time. That's a good sign for the market. On the other hand, Vince doesn't like what he's seeing in terms of margin balances or overall economic activity or even the market's breadth. But when he, when he looks at the positives, especially employment, he thinks this market can keep drifting higher in the next several months. So one major caveat, while things are okay now, they could go south in a hurry, which is why Vince is watching the percentage of new lows on any given decline. If that percentage goes above 4% of total issues during a high-volume decline, then he says you need to get out. But that hasn't happened yet, and we really haven't gotten close not even yesterday when the action was pretty ugly. Without that, he says any pullbacks, they're buying opportunities. The bottom line, the charge is interpreted by a man named Ralph Vince, who we really like, suggests that this market can keep drifting higher for the next few months as long as employment stays strong. Please don't get too complacent, as there are signs that not all is well as we go into the final third of the year. Can we start with Victor in California? Victor. Jimmy Chill, it's such a pleasure to talk to you. I want to thank you for being the champion of retail investors, my friend. That's what I want to be. Thank you. Absolutely. And because of you, I've decided to buy more GameStop and Bet Bath & Beyond. Shorts never closed. Boom. Not really, but that's all right. Let's go to Alex in Oregon. Alex. Monsignor uh, Kramer, we miss the notoriety of having your daughter live in our state. Oh, she might be back someday. She truly loves it. Good to hear from you again. What's going on? Hey, uh, can you help me with Twilio? I've had it high. I've had it low. And it's it's a 52-week low. Uh, Can you give me some direction there? Yeah, until as much as I like Jeff Lawson, I love the product, until they start actually making real gap money, actual earnings, I think that Twilio is going to remain uh, let's just say under undervalued, but not to go higher. And I thank you for the kind words about me and my daughter. Let's go to Tom in Louisiana. Tom. Hey, Jen. Good afternoon. Uh, good afternoon. About SoFi. S-O-F-I. SoFi is too cheap at six. I don't know when it's going to turn. 
I know a lot of people feel that it's down 60% and therefore it's a loser and they're going to be selling until the end of the year. But I myself think that SoFi is too cheap to sell. Okay, the chart suggests that this market can drift higher for the next few months as long as employment stays strong, and that's the key thing. But let's caveat it with, by taking some caution into the realm. Much more in money ahead, including I've done my homework on AdCore, and I'm ready to turn in my research on the stock that you asked about. And every morning I wake up very early and notice one shocking pattern. I'll reveal what it is and how you can position your thinking to fight it. And, of course, all your calls rapid fire in tonight's edition of the Lightning Round. So stay with Kramer. We're always on the hunt for new ideas here money. And sometimes, where do we get them? From you. I take last Thursday. I got this question from Alex in Oregon, where my daughter used to live, about a company called Atkor, A-T-K-R for you home gamers. And I promised I'm going to get a closer look. And you know what? It looks pretty good. Not great and not necessarily perfect for the current environment. But you know what? Intermediate to long term, I really do like this. So what is Atkor? This is an industrial it's a manufacturer of electrical products, primarily for the non-residential construction and renovation markets, although they also have a similar residential construction business. Lots of conduits and cables. On top of that, they make safety and infrastructure products for construction and industrial end markets. Now, there's a reason I wasn't familiar with this one. It's a smaller operator that's not consumer-focused at all. But that said, Accor is the number one or number two player in most of its product categories, and I really like that. Now, this company has a turbulent history. Accor used to be part of Tyco International before Ed Breen, DuPont, took over as CEO and broke the business up. Back in 2010, he sold Tyco's remaining electrical and metal products business to a private equity firm for about a billion dollars. And that was Accor. In 2016, the private equity firm took Accor public, although the deal wasn't particularly well received. In fact, for its first four years as a publicly traded company, Accor was a dog. Look at this. I mean, can you imagine? This thing isn't hunting. The stock would mount the occasional rally, but then it always seemed to pull back to 20 bucks. It was like stuck to the $20 line. Hey, by the time 2019 rolled around, the economy was booming. Good news for highly cyclical businesses like this one. And the stock basically doubled, jumping to $40 by the end of the year. But then the COVID crash hit, and guess where it went back to? You got it, $20. But by late 2020 and through most of last year, we were seeing a fabulous boom in all sorts of construction. It was anything related. Uh, this, all the kind of products that, that were related to Accor did incredibly well. As a matter of fact, they were in short supply. And that's how Accor could rally from $20 to 116 at its peak in November. Look at this run, huh? I would have loved to have gotten a call right here. Since then, the stock's become more erratic as the Fed's hit the brakes on the economy. Accor held up surprisingly well during the first five months of the year. But in June, the darn thing lost 35% of its value over the course of just two weeks because of recession fears. And it's struggled to gain traction ever since. Why? Because when the Fed declares war on inflation, anything connected to construction is going to have a harder time. You need to know that Accor is kind of a metaphor for the era. It's got construction. People say sell. Now, you have to understand, last year was huge for AdCorp. For the 2021 fiscal year, which ended September of 2021, they had 66% revenue growth and nearly 250% earnings growth. Now, a little of that came from small acquisitions. 
But it was mostly organic, meaning it's just year over year, same company because business was so booming. For example, last year, the average selling price for AdCourse products was up 55%. However, their earnings growth was much stronger than their revenue growth, which is not necessarily what you'd expect if this was just about shortages causing higher prices, because their input costs like copper and steel were also up big. According to AdCourse, they're benefiting from a broader electrification. I know these terms always get me suspicious, but mega trend. A mega trend driven by the rise of alternative energy and the growth of digital infrastructure. Think of all the data centers being built that need all sorts of cables and conduits. At an industry conference earlier this year, CEO Bill Waltz talked about the automation of warehouses and data centers, along with all the internet lines needed to set up virtual teaching uh, during COVID. Your average commercial building has more than electrical, more electrical needs than they did a few years ago, obviously, in part because of the smarter and more energy-efficient buildings, which means more business for you got it at core. Then you throw in the rise of solar power, which basically requires a parallel power grid. Plus, he mentioned that many states are currently hardening their physical infrastructure in order to cope with more extreme weather, like California, Florida, and Louisiana, moving their electrical lines underground. Hey, look, in an era of sometimes fiery global warming, Core may be the play. I got to tell you, that's a pretty compelling long-term story. But the problem right here is that the short-term Accor's business could take a real hit if we get a mandated recession. That's why the stock's come down from its highs. Of course, right now, that business remains excellent. Accor's turned in a string of beat and raised quarters. Most recently, uh, less than three weeks ago, they delivered a nice top and bottom line beat. Uh, with management even raising their full-year earnings forecast. Doesn't hurt that their biggest input costs have come down dramatically. Think copper, steel, polyvinyl chloride. Let me put it this way. When the Fed first went uh, on the warpath last November, Accor rolled out EBITDA guidance for this year. They were talking about doing $650 to $700 million in earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, amortization. Now, this is amazing. Their forecast is for more than $1.3 billion. Yeah, nearly double what they thought they'd make in November. Accor's only introduced a full-year sales forecast in May, talking about 25 to 30% revenue growth. Now they're saying it's going to be about 32%. So if Accor practically is printing money, why is the stock down big versus where it was trading when the forecasts were made much lower? Honestly, there is no problem right now. There's an expectation of a problem in the future, like so many other stocks that we talk about. Accor's got a lot of exposure to cyclical industries like construction, which means their earnings will indeed get slammed in a legitimate recession. They also have some residential construction exposure, which is even worse right now, as Toll Brothers said this very evening. The question is, how bad will it get? At the end of the day, Accor has an it really has got a comically low price-to-earnings multiple. It trades at just 4.2 times this year's earnings forecast. Usually when you see a stock this cheap versus, say, 18 times for the whole entire market, it means Wall Street has zero confidence in the estimates going forward. In short, if you buy Accor here, you're really fighting the tape. And you know I don't like fight the tape on mad money. But I like this one more than most cyclical. Unlike your typical industrial company, Accor's got exposure to powerful secular themes like, like digitization, like the energy transition. Plus, they should be a huge beneficiary from Biden's Inflation Reduction Act, which is mostly a climate change bill. For example, Accor should make a bundle as we build out electric vehicle charging stations. Yet the stock's actually down since then, even as the pure play alternative energy stocks have rallied. I think that's probably wrong. There's also the infrastructure bill that passed late last year, which had a lot of money for hardening the electric grid. Uh, also very good for AdCorp. And don't forget about the CHIPS Act. 
You better believe the new domestically built semiconductor plants will need a lot of AdCore's products. Even if AdCore's earnings estimates plummet from more than $20 this year to say like, I, 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 $12 in 2024, which is what the analysts expect, the stock is still just selling 7.5 times earnings. That is nuts, people, especially when you consider that the company's got a terrific track record. So let me give you the bottom line on something that I obviously think is mispriced and I like. I think AdCore could have a tough time over the next six odd months because nobody really wants to own a cyclical stock at this point in the business cycle. But long term, I think it's just a great story. You know what? You've got my blessing to buy some if you think we're only headed for a mild recession. Otherwise, you can wait until the skies are clear. But we don't often get that all clear weather call until it's too darn light. Shedding light on AdCore? I like it. Mad Money's back in the way. Coming up, Kramer takes your calls, and the sky is the limit. It's a fast fire lightning round. Next. And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready, Ski Daddy? Time for the lightning round. We're going to start with Greg in Ohio. Greg. Hey, Jim. Booyah from the great Buckeye State. A long time fan of you. Excellent. What's up? No, if we're going to do steals, I like them because it's very cheap. Four times earnings. But Nucor is almost as cheap, and it's got a much better record. It's a cleaner steel producer, and that's what we want right now. How about Jack in Ohio? Jack. Hey, thanks for your help, Jim. I'm wanting to add this company to my dividend income holding. The stock price has been going sideways for the past few months with the energy run. ENB Embridge. Oh, man, I was just reading about how great did you mean in Rusty Brazil, RBN, this morning. I think that is a great stock. I'm tempted to add it to the bullpen for the club, the investing club. Let's go to John in Texas. John. High Peak Energy, Jim. How's that one? Oh, my God. At 22 bucks. I mean, come on. Let's go. Okay, how about Palco in Michigan? Palco. Booyah, Jim, and a happy Booyah. Uh, shout out to you from Frankenmuth, Michigan. How are you, my friend? I am good. I bet you the weather's well. I, I want to go to Lake Michigan. I put that uh, note to self. What's up? All right, so I own shares of Devon Energy, and with the run in oils, I'm wondering if I need to add Marathon Oil to my portfolio. No, what do you think, no, Jim? no. We went over that this morning on our morning meeting that's part of the CBC Investment Club at 1020. We continue to like Devin here. We think Devin goes higher. That's the horse to bet on Joshua in Minnesota. Joshua. Yes, sir. Hey, Jim, how we doing? Couldn't be better. Thank you for asking. How about you? I'm doing very well, sir. Thank you. Hey, I got a question on uh, SLI, standard lithium. And no, no, no. That's a Canadian company. Don't make any money. We got to stick with money-making companies. How about Tesla? They're also in the lithium business. I need to go to Audi in Virginia. Audi. Booyah, Jim, from Goshen, Virginia. Oh, man, I love it down there. What's going on? You're sterling today. What's going on? WSO, Watchco. Watsco. I haven't looked at Watsco. You know what? I've not looked at Watsco recently enough. I did love it because my friend Matt Horween, writing partner, introduced it to me. 3% yield doing incredibly well. But we're going to double down on that home 
Mark Holm wants go. John in California. John. Hey, Jim. Booyah from a former reader of the L.A. Herald Examiner. Well, you know what? I was a great homicide reporter at one point in my career. What's going on? Um, I've had some dead money weighing down my portfolio for several years now. Should I keep holding on to Nokia? No, that is just the definition of dead money, and I'm done with that. We're going to try to make money with our money, not do nothing with our money. I want that reinvested in some of the things we like for the investing club. Check the mid-morning morning meeting at 1020, right in the middle. Let's go to Patrick in California. Patrick. Jim, thank you for taking my call. I appreciate all you do, my sir. My pleasure. Oh, thank you. RKLB, Rocket Lab, sir. No, 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 We only like to invest in companies that make money. It happens to be a core thesis of mad money is making money. Not that, hey, I can call it losing money, mad losing money. But I like to call it mad money, like mad making money. Let's go to Caleb in Louisiana. Caleb. Hey, Mr. Jim, I was calling to see what you think about the stock Carnival Corporation, ticker LLC. Oh, another person who wants some man losing money. I refuse to make this this hour-long, 17-year show into man losing money. I want to make money. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the conclusion of the... That was easy. Lightning Round! The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. Maybe we're just just consumed with self-hatred. I say that because I get up really early, psychotically early. Then I immediately turn on CBC and I've noticed an incredible pattern. Whatever market is doing the worst in the world in the early morning, we mimic that market. There could be positive action galore all over the globe. But as long as one market's down, our market will be right there hugging that miserable baseline at the open. You can argue we've got plenty of problems in this country, a huge budget deficit, widespread discontent, endless partisan rancor, a Jimmy Carter-style malaise hangs like a dark shroud over the entire investment class. But you know what? That's just pure vibes. It's not reality. In truth, we're much better off than the rest of the world. Let's take Germany. The other day, the German stock market was down about three-quarters of a percent, the worst in Europe. So, of course, we were down 0.8% because, well, no particular reason, just that stupid pattern. Sure enough, we opened down, and then we rallied. Rallied hard, because it made no sense whatsoever to be down to begin with. Why should we trade like Germany? They have terrible inflation and ridiculous energy costs. The Germans have no ability to fuel their economy right now, let alone their industry. They are hostage to Russia for natural gas. At any given moment, Putin can shut down their whole country, because they foolishly decided to shutter all their coal and nuclear plants in an insane effort to go green and safe incredibly fast. They've made big solar investments, too, but Germany's one of the worst places in the world for solar panels. You know why? It's not that sunny. Or let's say China's off a percent. Well, then we'll be down 1.1% at the opening. You get on nothing. So we have to go through the same song and dance. We open down, then we go flat, and then we rally. Time and again. It seems to be on the can of this market that China's extreme zero COVID policy has wrecked our economy. Worst example of communist science since Lysenko. 
China also has terrible droughts that are causing havoc with all sorts of shipping. They have tanks in front of banks to prevent looting. They're blowing up brand new unfinished buildings because there's not enough demand. Maybe they'll use the newly vacant lots for brand new unfinished buildings in order to subsidize people and keep the economy and life support. Oh, and these buildings, that they don't even know how to implode a building right. Check your Twitter feed. They go down all over the place. Sometimes they look like dominoes crashing. Sometimes people are running all over the place to avoid the, b- being blown up by the buildings. Why the heck should our market be down as much as their market? It, it Frankly, it, it defies any reasoning. This goes on every day. Sometimes Amsterdam is down a half a percent because natural gas now costs $70 per some unit when it costs $9 here. They sneeze at 70 we get pneumonia at 9 Britain, holy cow, are they in trouble. Horrendous inflation, expensive energy, real self-inflicted labor shortage thanks to Brexit. Their market can be down 0.9%, worse in the world, and then we clock in down 1% because of them. Again, we struggled all off by 11 Why does this happen? I can give you two reasons. One is that we're so depressed and down on ourselves that we can't possibly believe that we're in better shape than the worst acting market. Or two, in any given moment, as I said earlier, some hedge funds think it's 2008 all over again because the charts look similar and the manager presses the bet in thin early morning trading, taking the whole shooting match down. To which I say, wake up! For all our flaws and failings, we have the strongest currency, the best growth, the best natural resources, the lowest inflation, most stable government, deepest markets, best earnings, and the least exposure to the contagion from all those other stupid markets that are really awful. Now, I'm not pulling a Judy Garland here and saying, come on, get happy. But I am saying that America's doing better than pretty much everyone else, even if no one else wants to believe it. I like to say there's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise you I'll find it just for you right here on Mid Money. I'm Jim Cramer. See you tomorrow. The news with Shepard Smith starts now. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Cramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Cramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at CNBC.com or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.